I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Haggai 1 again. Over the next two Sundays, we're going to go through the book of Haggai. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 1, and the next week, we will look at chapter 2, and then we'll begin Advent season. Let me pray for us as you continue to turn there. Father, as we look to your word now, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to our minds and to our hearts. Conform us and shape us by your word, Lord. Help us to behold wonderful things in your word, that we might walk in your ways and live lives worthy of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as a Christian and a pastor, I guess, living in North America, I, I don't have a, a major concern that the majority of us will renounce our faith. I don't have a major concern that most of us in this room will reject Jesus Christ outrightly. Now, there will be self-professing Christians who will do this, but it's not like the majority of us will wake up tomorrow renouncing our faith. But I do have a concern as a Christian for myself and for you that though we may never outrightly renounce Jesus, we may over time become indifferent to him. In other words, we we may start off with a deep love for Jesus, but over time, due to many different circumstances, our love may wane. Our delight and our devotion may dissipate. We may continue to grow, to go through the emotions, but, but we have lost sight of our one true love, so to speak. The comforts, the pleasures of our affluent society over time can allure us away, not so much in renouncing Christ, but losing our appetite for fellowship with him and a devotion to his ways. And this is what I think we precisely see in Haggai 1. Now, in order to understand Haggai, we need to step back a little bit and understand the historical context. In 586 BC, Babylon utterly destroys Jerusalem. The temple of God is decimated. And the Babylonians take the Israelite survivors into captivity, into Babylon. Now, God had told Israel that that they would be exiles in Babylon because of their idolatry and rebellion against him. So that was 586 B.C. But in 536 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, who overtakes Babylon, he issues a decree permitting the Jewish exiles to to return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple. And you can read about that in Ezra chapter 1. Now there's about 50,000 Israelites who decided to take the long journey, the 900-mile journey, back to the promised land, to Jerusalem. And they did this under the leadership of Zerubbabel and the the governor and Joshua the high priest, which we read of in Haggai 1. So they returned to Jerusalem and they began the work of restoring the temple. 
The first thing they did was to establish the altar where they would offer their burnt offerings to the Lord. And then in the second year, which is 535 B.C., they laid the foundation of the temple. And you can read about that in Ezra chapter 3. However, after this point, they began to face opposition. There was hostility from neighboring tribes. King Cyrus, the king of Persia, dies in battle, and the king that replaces him begins to oppose the rebuilding of the temple. So the work on the temple in Jerusalem ceases. The Israelites turn their attention to their own private affairs. Their commitment and their desire to rebuild, to rebuild the temple died out. Fifteen years had passed and no work was done on the temple. And it's at this moment in 520 B.C., where God raises up Haggai, the prophet, to speak on his behalf to the people of Israel to call them to complete the work they began. Now, it's important we understand that these Israelites who returned were truly devoted to God. They didn't have to return to Jerusalem. Many of the Israelites had stayed in Babylon because they they had made a life for themselves there. But these 50,000 Israelites were were distinguished by their devotion to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they returned precisely because they wanted to obey God and his ways and see the city of God, Jerusalem, restored to its former glory. For Jerusalem was the place of God's choosing. It was the city which he chose to dwell with his people, Israel. They wanted to see the temple restored to its former glory. They wanted God's presence to reside in the temple like the former days. So much so that in Ezra chapter 2 verse 69, they gave of their own resources to see the temple rebuilt. And to equate what they gave to our modern times, it would have been over $5 million to seeing the work begun on the temple. But over time... Their devotion and their dedication to the Lord waned. They got caught up in their own pursuits. And it's at this point where Haggai begins to speak, to wake them from their slumber. And it's important we know this because these Israelites were not like the Israelites before the captivity. These Israelites were were people who truly loved God and wanted to follow him. They were committed to the things of God. They were, in many ways, like faithful Christians who love Jesus and are devoted to his church. Yet over time, their devotion waned, and over time, their hearts became captivated by worldliness. We are just as susceptible as Israel was. We too can experience a a deep commitment and devotion to the Lord, but over time, if we're not careful, our devotion and our love can wane. You see, Israel had a task, and they became indifferent to the task. And this is when God raises up Haggai to speak. He's been given the task 
of calling Israel to repentance over their sin. So the first thing we see here in verses 1 through 11 is that God confronts Israel over their priorities. Verse 1 sets the context. Verses 2 to 4, you see God questioning Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua, but it's ultimately addressed to the nation as a whole. So look at verses 1 through 4. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? See, in verses 2 to 4, we see that Israel has the wrong priorities. They're making excuses when it comes to the rebuilding of the temple. It's, it's not the right time. But the reality is it's, it's been 15 years since the foundation of the temple was laid. The problem wasn't the time. The problem was their priorities. Rather than being devoted to the rebuilding of the temple, they were devoted to beautifying their own homes and dwelling in security and comfort. Now, it, it's hard to understand why this was sinful if we don't understand the significance and the role the temple of God played in the history of Israel. God rescued Israel from Egypt, and the primary purpose in rescuing Israel was that they would be his people and he would be their God. God established a, a covenant relationship with the Israel. He sought to dwell in the midst of Israel so that they could have communion, fellowship, and intimacy with God, that they would know his presence and worship him. But God had to establish a means by which this communion, this worship could take place because Israel was sinful and God was holy. See, the Bible makes clear that sinful creatures cannot enter into the presence of a holy God and live. So, so how is it possible for Israel to commune with God? How is it possible for them to enjoy his presence? Well, God establishes a system so that Israel can commune with God and not die. He establishes a, a tabernacle, a, a tent and there are specific areas within the tabernacle. And, and this, this one specific area, which is called the Holy of Holies, is the place that God has chosen to dwell in the midst of Israel. And there are specific practices that Israel must follow in order to worship God and experience His pleasure. There are offerings and sacrifices that are to be made, animal sacrifices for the purpose of atoning for sin. They would place their hands upon the animal as if the animal was then bearing their guilt and the animal would take the place of the Israelite. It was a representation that, that Israel needed to have their sins dealt with in order to be able to relate and commune with God. 
There were ceremonial washings that had to be done, for no unclean thing could enter into the presence of God and live. You see, the tabernacle was at the center of the nation of Israel. It was the meeting place between God and human humanity. And this, this tabernacle, this tent, was movable. The Israelites traveled with it. They would take it down and set it back up as they traveled through the wilderness. But once when Israel was established in the promised land, David's son, King Solomon, had a permanent tabernacle established in the city of Jerusalem. And this tabernacle was the temple. And all of Israelite worship focused around the temple. God had chosen to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, the holy city, by specifically coming and dwelling in the holy of holies within the temple. And so when Babylon destroyed the temple in 586 BC as a result of Israel's sin, which God had forewarned, God was making a statement to the people of Israel. I have forsaken this place because you have forsaken me. I have left this temple because you have left me. That was the significance of the temple in Israel's history. It was the meeting place between God and Israel. The primary place of worship. Now they're back in the land and God has called them to rebuild the temple. But they've neglected this task because they've prioritized their own homes. In other words, their sin wasn't fundamentally because they weren't building the physical temple. It was much deeper because of the significance of the temple. Their indifference to the rebuilding of the temple was indifference to the presence of God. It was indifference to worshiping and communing with God. They didn't have the heart of David who in Psalm 27, 4 cries out, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. What is that one thing? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. They did not have that attitude toward God. They were indifferent to the presence of and worship of God while devoting their time, their resources, their energy to their own security and comfort. They were committing idolatry. Not like their forefathers who, had, who would bow down to specific golden images, who would worship the Baals, but a, an idolatry that is far more aligned with the idolatry that we experience in our lives today. See, we don't bow down to graven images, but we often prioritize many of our worldly pursuits over our pursuit of God. Better careers, nicer homes, more money, better education, position and status, security and comfort. All of these things are not inherently bad, but they can become bad when we idolize them when we place them on the throne of God all of these can become idols if we prioritize these things over our pursuit of the things of God 
Just as Israel prioritized their own homes over the rebuilding of God's temple. They were living for themselves rather than the glory of God. And so in verses 2 to 4, God questions them because of their excuses and their wrong priorities, their idolatry. And in verses 5 to 6, God calls them to consider their ways in light of this. Because he wants them to see that their wrong priorities, their idolatry, have in no way actually benefited them. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. In other words, your, wor- your wages disappear. You see, there are two things we see here in these two verses. One, all their hard work has amounted to little. And secondly, even when they had, they're never satisfied. You, you sown much, but harvested little. You've worked tirelessly, day in and day out, and yet you've had such little return. But not only that, you, you eat and you, you drink, but you never have enough. In other words, you invest all this time, energy, resources in earthly pursuits, Israel, yet again, so, yet you gain so little from it and are never satisfied by it. You know, if this doesn't describe what our society is like, I don't know what does. An endless pursuit of earthly things and earthly accomplishments and the return is so small and so unsatisfying. David Brooks, who's a conservative writer for the New York Times, I think he's the only conservative writer for the New York Times, um, He tells his story about when his book uh, hit the New York Times bestseller list and he shares how he thought that in that moment he would find so much satisfaction, so much accomplishment and he realized that in that moment he had placed so much identity in his career that he was actually miserable. All his work, all his effort Though it got him somewhere, it left him empty. You see, the question that's put before us is this. What are you investing in? Things that will never satisfy and never truly last? Or things that will have eternal significance and eternal reward? Namely, God and his purposes. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're constantly told that if we just get a little bit more, 
a little bigger home, a, a little more money in the bank, a little more accomplished with our education, a little more status in society, then we'll truly be happy and satisfied. And in the end, we invest our time, our energy, our resources into these pursuits only to discover that it will not last and it will not ultimately satisfy. And that's because the human soul was made for an infinite reality, God. As Augustine said, our hearts, O God, are restless until they find their rest in you. So God shows them the foolishness of their ways For while they have worked for much, they've gained little. And if you jump down to verses 9 to 11, skip over verses 7 to 8, you'll see a little further explanation for why Israel is experiencing little return for all their labor and why it seems their prosperity is vanishing. Look at verses 9 through 11. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors." Why have they not gained but loss? The answer is simple. Because of God. Verse 9. I blew it away. Verse 11. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills. It was God who intervened. It was God who did not bless their efforts. What's the reason for why God has done this? Verse 9, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. That's why God has not blessed their labors. In other words, because of your idolatry, Israel, I have frustrated your worldly endeavors. Specifically in this context, he's brought famine and drought upon the land. Now we need to understand the the Israelites were an agricultural people and the old covenant that God had established with Moses and the people had stipulations based upon Israel's obedience and disobedience. If Israel obeyed God and worshipped him, God would bless them and prosper them, specifically in regards to the land. They would have grain and new wine and oil and an abundance of supply. But if they turned from God and worshipped idols, the land would suffer. Israel wouldn't experience the blessings and prosperity they were meant to experience under God's care. Which, Which means famine and drought under the old covenant was meant by God to awaken Israel to their sin. That they might turn from their sin and turn back to the God who set his love upon them. It was so that they would turn from their idolatry and turn back to him, the God of their salvation. You see, here's what we see God doing here in this this passage. 
Israel, you've devoted yourself to worldly pursuits rather than the things of God. You care more about your homes than you care about having my presence in your midst. You care about having wealth and security rather than seeing me glorified in your midst. So I'm going to show you just how unreliable and empty your pursuits and your idols are. I'm dedicated I'm devoted to destroying your idols. I will demonstrate to you that all these worldly pursuits are but empty. And brothers and sisters, he is just as committed in our lives to do the same. He is committed to destroying our idols. He probably won't kill your apple tree. But he will go after your idols. So that you don't find your satisfaction, your security, and your identity in them. You see, God wasn't against Israel having nice paneled homes. He was against them being more devoted to their nice homes rather than the things of God. They're neglecting that which should have preeminence in their lives. Namely, God. And therefore, he's committed to destroying the things that have taken the place of God in their lives. And I believe he will do that to each of us. If we belong to him, God's mission is to remove the idols from your heart, to destroy the things that would keep you from knowing the joy and fullness of your salvation in him. See, this is why God confronts Israel. He's calling them to repentance for their wrong priorities. He's calling them to consider their ways. And he doesn't just say that once. He calls them twice to consider their ways. And in fact, in the next chapter, he again calls them twice to consider their ways. In verse 5, but also here in verses 7 to 8. He doesn't just call them to consider their ways, but he also calls them to action. Look at verses 7 to 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In other words, will my glory, Israel, be your priority? Will having the temple rebuilt, where where my glory will dwell, where I will be worshipped, will that have precedent in your life, Israel? And that same question is for all of us as followers of Christ. Will the glory of Christ be our priority? Will, Will communion with God be our ultimate pursuit? Will Christ be worshipped Take, will, will Christ being worshipped take precedent in our lives? Consider your ways, Christian. Consider how you use your time. Consider what you set your eyes upon. Consider how you use your money. Consider the company you keep. Consider what has priority in your life. We often want black and white answers. But quite often, the scriptures don't give us black and white answers. You see, I can't tell you whether or not Christ reigns supreme in your life simply on whether or not you have a nice home or not a nice home. 
or whether you have a great career or don't have a great career. The fact is, there are Christians who have nice homes, and yet they're far more devoted to Jesus than some Christians who don't have nice homes and vice versa. I know of a a godly couple who basically they bought a large plot of land, and the husband was a carpenter, and he built this beautiful, large home. And I think that many Christians probably could have, in some sense, questioned their motives. But the reason why that family had done that was because they wanted their home to be kind of an offshoot of the church building where they could do things at the home and bless people in the community and in the church. And so it was like every week they had people in their home. Every week they had parties in their homes where there was Christian fellowship and and prayer taking place. They built this beautiful home for the purpose of honoring God and building up his kingdom. You see, you need to consider your ways and to ask yourself, why are you doing the things you're doing? Why are you pursuing the things you're pursuing? You ought to, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You see, as new covenant believers, we're not called to build a physical temple for God. It would be wrong of me if I stood up here and used this passage to then say, you ought to give more money so that we can update this church. That would not be a proper application of this passage. A proper application of this passage would be this. We are called to build up the house of God. And what is the house of God today? It is the people of God. What are your priorities when it comes to the things of God? We are not called to build a temple. Yes, we need to steward this property. Yes, we need to take care of this property. But our highest priority before this building is to one another and to Christ. He is the temple of God in which we meet to worship. Consider your ways, O Christian. So God confronts Israel over their priorities. He calls them to repentance. And then in verses 12 to 15, we see specifically Israel's repentance and obedience to God. Look at verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Israel responds in repentance and obedience to God. 
And here in these verses, we discover what true repentance actually is. First, we see that repentance always involves action. Verse 12, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God. Their repentance led to action. It led to change. It doesn't mean that Israel wouldn't ever get ever again lose sight of their priorities. Of course they would. We know that when you read into the New Testament. But it simply means that at that very moment, they repented and their repentance was demonstrated by action, by obedience. That's why, that's why you might this morning say to the Lord, for example, I've been greedy, Lord, with my money or my wealth or I've been greedy with whatever it may be. Lord, forgive me and I'm sorry. But if that doesn't lead you to change in some way how you use your money, you haven't truly repented. You see, true repentance doesn't mean you'll never struggle, for example, with greed again. But it does mean in that moment you will take action in regards to making change in your life. Secondly, repentance always involves reverence for God. Look at verse 12. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet and their Lord and the Lord their God had and the as the Lord their God had sent them and the people feared the Lord. That word fear isn't the same thing as scared, but it's the sense of reverence and awe. It's it's like Isaiah in chapter 6 when he gets a vision of the throne room of God and he sees God upon the throne and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He, He sees and beholds God in his majesty and wonder, and it causes him to cry out in repentance, Woe is me, for I am a man with unclean lips. You see, friends, it's possible to be sorry for something and not repentant. It's possible to regret certain choices and not repent. People who have no fear of God can be sorry quite often. They regret the things they've done in their lives, but they haven't repented. Biblical repentance is always a response to who God is. I have sinned against this holy, majestic, pure, all-consuming God. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's always a reverence for God that leads to true repentance. Thirdly, Repentance and obedience is always God-empowered. Look at verses 13 to 14 again. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. You've got to think about how powerful those words are for a people who were in captivity for 70 years. I am with you, says the Lord. But look, look what he says in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Joshua, the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. They were called to obey the Lord, 
but the Lord empowered them to obey. God doesn't just make the command, he empowers us to fulfill the command. We must repent, yet know that when we repent, it's because God has so worked in our hearts, he has stirred in our hearts to move us to repentance and obedience. This is what I call gospel empowerment. There is never a moment in my life where I have done things faithfully toward God apart from Him empowering me, Him stirring up my spirit to serve Him in a manner that is worthy of Him. There is nothing that I can say, this was done solely by me. God stirred their spirits to respond rightly to what He commanded. This is what happened with Israel. They were confronted by God because of their idolatry. They repented and obeyed the voice of the Lord. And we see here in this passage that this this whole situation in Haggai 1 was a 23-day process. In verse 1, we're told it was the sixth month, the first day of the month. And the passage ends in verse 15 on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month. That's when they began to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is what happened with Israel. They neglected the rebuilding of the temple and God in his kindness raises up a prophet to speak to them and to call them to the task that they were supposed to complete. Now I want to end our time leaving us with some questions to wrestle with. And first, I want to speak to the the individual here who might have a Christian background You might claim to be a Christian, but you're not actually a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't actually know him and love him. I want to speak to you, and I also want to speak to the individual who who might actually say, yeah, I'm not a Christian. I, I don't follow Christ. I want to speak to the person who doesn't know Jesus. And I want to say to you in love that you're an idolater. Just like the Israelites and just like me and just like every person in this church. You've given your devotion, your time, your resources to specific purposes. You've sought to build an identity in worldly things. When you were ultimately made to find your identity in Christ. When you were ultimately made to give all of your devotion to Jesus Christ. God doesn't call you to build a temple like he called Israel to build a temple. And that's because we discover that the temple in the Old Testament was merely a foreshadowing of something far more glorious to come. We learn from the scriptures that Jesus Christ has become the temple of God. That is the meeting place between God and man. And this is why he says to the people in John chapter 2 that he will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And of course, we're told that he was referring to his own death. 
through Christ's death and resurrection, he becomes the temple of God. It's through him that we have access to God. It's through him that we have peace with God. It's through him that we have fellowship with God. He's the meeting place between God and humanity. And so to my friend here this morning who's not a Christian, God's not calling you to rebuild his temple. He's calling you to give your life to Jesus Christ who is the temple of God. He's far more worthy of your devotion than anything else in this world. Will you bow the knee to him and allow him to have preeminence in your life? Will you turn from your idolatry and will you allow Christ to reign supreme over your life? He died for your idolatry so that you could worship him and know him rightly. Secondly, I want to speak to the Christian that's here this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you whether you will take the time this week to truly consider your ways? Will you be honest with yourself and before God whether or not your devotion and commitment to Him has waned? Will you ask yourself, do I truly long to commune with God above all other pursuits in life? Is God and his ways truly the priority of your life? And if, you answer, and if you discover that the answer to that question is no, will you, like Israel, by the grace of God, respond in repentance and obedience? Consider your ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that now by your spirit you would take your word to accomplish its work in our hearts. For the glory of Christ's name we pray this. Amen.